Take your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter number 7. Acts chapter number 7. We come this morning to one of the more powerful messages in all the Word of God. Certainly, I believe the Sermon on the Mount and the Upper Room Discourse would qualify as two of the greatest sermons that uh, uh, ever were preached and taught in the Word of God, but I would rank this one right up there with any of them. And this particular sermon is not preached by necessarily a preacher, but this man is just a godly man. The Bible says of him, he is full of the Holy Ghost. He's selected to be a servant in the early church, just a godly man by the name of Stephen. And we come to this lengthy sermon that he preaches to those who are accusing him of being a follower of Jesus Christ. The name of the sermon this morning is going to be the stone which the builders rejected. See, in the Bible, Jesus Christ bears many names. In fact, one preacher decided to do a study on all the names of Jesus and the Word of God, and he surmised that by his count, there was at least 100 different and unique names that Jesus Christ was called in the Scriptures. Another man did a study quite similar and somewhat corroborated this when he found 102 unique names for the Lord Jesus Christ found in the Holy Scriptures. You see, you can say that there may be more than a hundred, but there's certainly not less. Jesus bears many names in Scripture. That can certainly become confusing at times. I remember growing up in our house, uh, my dad had raised six children by the time he got to me. And so when I would get in trouble and anger him and frustrate him... Sometimes he would kind of just go through the whole list of children before he'd get to me. He'd say, I can't believe you do that, Gene, David, Laura, Darla, Mandy, Andrew. And he would just kind of go through the whole list. And what I always thought was that was just the list in order of likeliness to commit that trespass. I was the least likely, so it took him the longest to get to me. But that many names can become confusing. But the scriptures give Jesus no less than a hundred unique names. Names like found in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 where the Bible says that his name would be called Wonderful and Counselor and the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. The book of Jeremiah calls Jesus Christ the righteous branch and calls him a king. Isaiah chapter 16 verse 16 calls him the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Luke chapter 2 verse 11, the angel says, Unto you is born this day a Savior. Jesus Christ is called the Savior. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, the Bible says that His name shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted meant God with us. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 9 and 10, the Bible says that though Jesus has been given many names throughout the Scriptures, that His name would be a name above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every, every tongue would confess and every knee would bow that He is Lord indeed. Amen. Jesus Christ 
has many needs and these, these uh, many names and these names are powerful and mighty. And the question to be asked this morning is, why does he have so many names? You see, these names do not indicate primarily who Jesus was. These names serve to indicate what Jesus would do. And each of these names are unique to a certain characteristic and quality of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning we come to a name that does not get quite the, the pomp and circumstance of many of the other names, especially those I've mentioned to you this morning. We come in chapter uh, 118 of the book of Psalms to a name that we do not refer to Jesus by that much at all. And that psalm, and we'll, we'll, we'll get there in just a moment, but that psalm says this, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. And this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoted on three different occasions in the Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke, of quoting this particular psalm. And he says, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Peter even mentions this as he stands before the Sanhedrin council. In Acts chapter 4, he says, And he beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. Now to us this may be quite archaic and distant language, certainly. But there is great pictures of one of the great qualities of the ministry of Jesus found in this phrase, the stone which the builders rejected. See, in the ancient times, what was very important when constructing a building, the most important part of that building was the cornerstone. Because the cornerstone set the rest of the building's shape. It determined the rest of the building's, the building's soundness. It was the most important. And at every corner, there would be a cornerstone. But that which was called the chief cornerstone was that which was chosen first. And the imagery here is that there was a stone set in place by God. And those that were called to build upon what God was doing came and evaluated the quality of that stone. Whether it was large enough, whether it was sharp enough and strong enough and sound enough to be what they would build their religion upon. And as they sat there and found its qualities and evaluated how good it was, the builders that were called to build rejected what God had laid in the first place. There are many names that Jesus is called by, but this particular name, the stone which the builders rejected, speaks how Jesus would live a life and bear out a ministry that would be primarily and largely rejected by men. 
This is incomplete fulfillment to the book of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3 where it says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus throughout his life was a man rejected, a man of sorrows. The Bible says, and he came into his own And his own received him not, the the builders rejecting the stone. There are many ways to preach a sermon. There are many types of sermons. I somewhat like to pride myself in being somewhat of a student of preachers and a, a student of sermons. And there are many, as I mentioned, types of sermons. There are what we call topical sermons. Those are that which just take a topic in the Bible, for instance, love, or love in action, or compassion. And they take that topic, and they, from that one particular verse, or that one particular thought, evaluate a whole bunch of scriptures in light of what that topic is. That is not my primary method of preaching, but it is certainly one uh, with certain great qualities. There is a biographical type of preaching and sermon that really overviews the life of a man. Maybe he would go to Samson and find a man who started well but began to reject authority and then eventually he's making small mistakes that lead to much larger mistakes. And a biographical sermon overviews this man's life. And you can do that with any of the Bible characters. That's a biographical sermon. That's not primarily the way that I preach, though there's probably nothing wrong with it. There is another style of sermon that I try to preach most frequently, and that is what is called expositional. That is, you take a passage of Scripture, wherever that's found in the Word of God, and you study that section of Scripture, and you try to leave it in its context, and you do not take liberty with that passage. You preach what is there. You find the main focus of that passage, and that is the heart that is to be delivered to the people. And that's what I try to do. But more frequently, I find myself probably preaching what I call longhorn sermons. You know, they've got a point here and a point there and a whole bunch of bull in the middle. I would probably say I'm guilty of preaching a few of those. I mentioned this morning that we come to Stephen's sermon just before he's martyred. I read through this sermon looking for his main point. And and that's the way you ought to listen to preaching. A good sermon may have three points, four points, or five points. But at the end of the day, if the next day you cannot remember the five points of the sermon, I hope you remember the main point of the sermon. I read this with intrigue as to what his main point was, and I believe we find it in chapter 7 and verse 51. Stephen sums up his message with one verse. And he says, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist... The Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. We find a man here, 
accusing these religious elites, those who Israel regarded as the best of them. He accuses them of rejecting God at every turn. And he says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Friend, I will tell you one of the great condemnations of the church today is that if God were to show up and ask us to do something for Him, we would reject His his wishes. Too many churches already have their programs and have their agendas and have their deadlines and their schedules. And if God were to show up and ask them to change what they've already been doing for years that hasn't been working, we would say, you know what, God, we're good. We've got this. And we would turn God out of His own place. We're not altogether different from these that Stephen is accusing of always rejecting God. And specifically, Stephen's motivation is to tell them that in rejecting God, and rejecting His messengers, and rejecting His Spirit, they have now rejected the one that God sent to them, and that is, by name, Jesus Christ. And through his sermon... He uses three examples of men that these people or their fathers rejected and he compares their rejection of this day to that of previous days. I want you to notice first of all this morning, he says the rejection of the preferred son. That's what he speaks about first, the rejection of the preferred son. Notice in chapter 7 and verse 8, Stephen overviews the somewhat the chronicles of Israel's formation. There's uh, ups and there's certainly downs, but these men by this time that Stephen is speaking to would have regarded the men that Stephen is uh, 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 calling to their mind as heroes of the faith. Notice in verse number 8, the Bible says, And he gave the uh, covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begat Isaac. And circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob. And Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, that is the sons of Jacob, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him. And delivered him out of all his afflictions. And gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt. And all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Chanan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren, and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, three score and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died. He and our fathers. Now the primary motivation that Stephen has in referring to this Old Testament story is he speaks of how Joseph was the preferred son and the brethren, his brothers, rejected that. And you may recall that story, but the Bible teaches that Jacob had ten sons before he ever had Joseph. But he loved Joseph dearly. And he actually made for Joseph a coat of many colors. And he gave that coat to Joseph. 
We really don't have a lot of information about what that coat may have looked like or what that coat may have symbolized. There are some that believe that that coat symbolized that Jacob had chosen Joseph to be his heir. That was totally out of the norm because he was the tenth son. Nine came before him. Nine deserved to be the heir, but Jacob had chosen Joseph. You say, well, why did he choose Joseph? Well, if you'll recall, Joseph, or I'm sorry, Jacob had been uh, hoodwinked into marrying his first wife. You recall his father-in-law told him, oh yeah, I'll give you your wife if you'll just work for me seven years. He worked for him seven years and on his wedding night when he thought he was getting Rachel, uh, Laban sneaked into his room, Leah. And Leah there became his first wife. Jacob was deceived. And Jacob's first several children came, not with Rachel, but with Leah. Then you go on further into the story. Jacob works seven more years and finally gets Leah to be his wife. And Leah, or I'm sorry, Rachel is barren. She doesn't, she's not able to have children. So following the example and probably the poor example of those that had gone before them, she gave to Jacob a handmaiden. And many of these sons came from Leah, a handmaiden, or Rachel's handmaiden. So the first nine sons did not come from Rachel. Rachel was barren for many years. And then finally God opened up his, her womb. I'm glad he didn't open up his womb. That would have been very miraculous indeed. But God opened up Rachel's womb and gave to Jacob his firstborn from Rachel, the woman that he loved. And the Bible says that Jacob loved Joseph because he was the son of his old age. In that household, there was no dispute who was dad's favorite. There was no question about it. That coat may have just simply symbolized favoritism. That coat may have just simply symbolized uh, that he was the heir. That coat certainly symbolized that Jacob had a particular affection for Joseph that none of the other boys had. And because of this, Joseph's brethren rejected him. They took him and they threw him into the bottom of the pit. And the original plan was that they would kill him, take back the coat that they so hated back to Jacob and say, beasts devoured him. Reuben finally talked some sense into him and says, we can't do this kind of thing. That's bad for even us. And so they come up with a plan, a much more gracious and godly plan, we would rather sell our brother into slavery than we would kill him. And so that's what they do. They rejected Joseph. The story is quite remarkable because later on, as we read just kind of in Stephen's dialogue, it all kind of comes about. And Joseph is able to look at his brothers and say, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God used the preferred son to save the sons that had betrayed him. And here we find Stephen using that Old Testament example of Jesus Christ being the preferred son of God, the promised son of God that would come and be smitten and rejected and esteemed afflicted of God. And he would be the one who took the sins and on the cross he would pray, Father, forgive them. And what everybody else meant for evil, 
God on Golgotha, on Calvary's hill, would mean for good for the salvation of all of mankind. Jesus Christ is the rejected Son, but He is the preferred and promised Son of God. There's no doubt about it. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, in John chapter 5 and verse 18, the Bible says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill Him, because He not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. This is the primary accusation in Pilate's judgment hall that the Jews make of Jesus. They say, uh, we have a law, and by our law He ought to die, because He made Himself the Son of God. Jesus was the promised Son of God. He made no bones about it. He totally claimed that title. And one day, the Bible tells us that while Jesus was speaking to His disciples, He spoke of them, of God the Father. And the words came across in John chapter 14. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Philip, being a sincere disciple, requests what I believe to be a, a good request, one that he felt was right. He looks at Jesus and Philip says, immediately following that verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Philip says this, Jesus, will you show us the Father? As if to suggest that there was some level higher than Jesus. As if to suggest that Jesus was just sort of second class, and, he, and Philip couldn't wait to the day when he actually got to see the Father. And Jesus responds to Philip and he says, Have I been so long with you that you ask these kind of questions? He says, Philip, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. In claiming to be the Son of God, Jesus Christ claimed to be God in the flesh. He is the preferred Son of God, and He is the promised Son of God. And when He came to this earth, we rejected Him. And even today, that is still what's taking place. This morning, all across this nation, filling pulpits, there will be preachers who lift high the cross and who preach the name of Jesus, and preach hell hot and heaven sweet, and preach sin evil and God's grace great. And they're going to preach that message, and all in their pews, there will be some saved, but there will be those that are lost. And today that preacher will give an invitation at the end of the sermon, and he'll say, if you do not know today that you're on your way to heaven, would you come meet a Savior who's willing to forgive you of your sins? Would you come and be saved? And today, in that pew... That sinner will reject Jesus. Jesus is rejected all in our universities. Jesus is rejected in pulpits today. Jesus is still rejected as the preferred Son of God. Stephen not only mentions the rejection of the preferred Son, but he mentions, secondly, the rejection of the provided Deliverer. Notice in chapter 7 and verse 22, now he fast forwards in Israel's history. We've gone from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and now in verse 22 we find 
And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. The Bible goes on to say, when he was full 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. You see, uh, Stephen now speaks of Moses as being a deliverer. That God had chosen to deliver the children of Israel. And in this, I think we find several similarities to Jesus Christ. Number one, we see that in his inauguration, Moses is kind of a picture of Jesus. Do you remember when Moses came and was born in this earth? There was a decree sent out by Pharaoh that they should kill all the male children of Israel. He had first uh, uh, commissioned the Hebrew midwives to kill the babies. And they, they feared God. They could not do that. And praise the Lord, there's still people in this land fighting for the rights of the unborn and the newly born. God loves life. God values life. And life is a sanctified and special thing set apart by God. God gives life and God's ta- God takes life. Surgeons ought not be able to have that privilege. And we find here Moses being mentioned as the promised deliverer by God. His birth is unique and quite reminiscent of Jesus because you'll remember uh, his mother went and made a basket of the bulrushes and, and put it down there in the Nile River. It came and found its way to Pharaoh's daughter. And God uniquely and divinely preserved and protected Moses. It's not altogether different from the story of Jesus. How that in his day, Herod had sent out a decree to kill all the babies under two years old. And in that day, Jesus was preserved by God as Jacob and Mary were sent to Egypt, a way to flee from the decree. We find that Moses is similar in his inauguration. But Moses is also similar in his mediation. And do not miss this today. Verse 22 says that Moses was learned in all the ways of the Egyptian. He had wisdom of the Egyptians. You imagine how wonderful this is. That some 80 years before Moses would ever show up on the scene to deliver the nation of Israel, God divinely moved this little baby in a basket down the Nile River so that it bumps into the leg of a bathing Pharaoh's daughter. Can you imagine how God, 80 years prior, sets this up? We look at problems as if they're so isolated in time. We get so overwhelmed in moments. God doesn't work in moments. God works in decades. God works in centuries. We pray about problems as if today's problem is the biggest thing God's got on His plate. God's got it all worked out, Christian. We find this baby picked up. (coughs) Pray for me. We'll get through this. Amen. We find this baby picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and brought into the palace. And the first 40 years of Moses' life, he is trained in all the ways of the Egyptians. Now you imagine he's going to take a 40-year sabbatical learning how to lead. Okay, He's going to be a shepherd out in the wilderness. But when he returns to Pharaoh's court, let me ask you a question. How many of those Hebrew slaves... Do you think as their taskmasters whip their back with the whips to make their burdens heavy, how many of of those Hebrew slaves do you think could have said, you know what, 
I require a court with Pharaoh. I want to speak to the man in charge. How many of them do you think would be ushered straight from there under their heavy loads to be taken into the palace courtroom to talk to Pharaoh? Probably none of them. Why was Moses given that privilege? Because he was a prince of Egypt. He was the son of the Hebrews and a prince of Egypt. More than that, you have Moses. Amen, Brother Jay. You see where I'm going, brother? Oh, man, it gets good, folks. It gets good. We find Moses now being intimidated to speak to Pharaoh. He says, I'm not a man eloquent of speech. I'm not a man that can talk like this. I don't have, I stutter, I, I struggle. But friend, you understand, when he goes into Pharaoh's court, Aaron does not speak the language of the Egyptians. Moses does. Aaron has to speak through an interpreter, a translator. Oh no, not Moses. He's the son of Pharaoh. He's a son of Egypt. He's a prince of Egypt and the son of the Hebrews. And he comes uniquely qualified, not needing a translator, not needing an interpreter, speaking directly to the man in charge. And he says, let my people go. Not in the Hebrew tongue, but in the Egyptian tongue. And he says, Oh, and Pharaoh's going to start negotiating. Well, why don't you just go one day's journey into the wilderness? Why don't you just leave the women and children and all the herds here? Moses says, oh no, don't you get caught up in semantics. I know what God's asked us to do. Let my people go. In this, Moses was qualified like none other. And we see here, A picture of a man mediating between the sovereign and the slave. We see Jesus, who was given a name above every name, who humbled himself and became a servant in the form of sinful flesh. And he came to this earth. Why? So that he might mediate on behalf of those in bondage. So that He might mediate. So that He might feel our pain and know our struggle. And know what it is to be a sinner. And know what it is to be tempted. He came and He felt all of that. So that He might go into the courtroom of God. And apply His precious blood on the mercy seat in the throne room of God. I get it's loud for a Sunday morning sermon. But Jesus came as the mediator. As the advocate. As the propitiation. As the substitutionary atonement for our sins. Nobody else could have done it. Aaron couldn't have done it as the high priest. Moses was able to mediate on behalf of the children of Israel. Jesus Christ is our mediator before God in heaven this morning. And I thank the Lord that He is. You see, Jesus was uniquely qualified as our provided deliverer from our sin. Nobody else could have delivered us from that bondage but Jesus Christ alone. Amen. Number one, we see that Stephen mentions the rejection of the preferred son. We see, number two, that Stephen mentions the rejection of the provided deliverer. But number three, I want you to see the rejection of the prophet's message. Notice in verse number 51. Folks, I'm sorry if you don't like loud preaching. I'm sorry. But I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of things you could listen to in this life. And none of it will be as good as what's found in this book. Verse number 51, 
Stephen says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Notice verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. We come now, as Stephen has gone from Joseph being a man rejected of his own brothers, and Moses being a man who was rejected as deliverer. And then we come now to the prophets. The word of God is full of prophets. Someone counted them and estimated that there are some 68 different prophets found in God's word. The Bible records that there are 17 prophetical books that bear the names of prophets. Five major prophets and 12 minor prophets. And don't get it mistaken, the major prophets are not more important. They're just lengthier. Like this is a major sermon and, you know, sometimes we have minor sermons, shorter and longer. (laughs) But those books are just as important as we see Israel running from God, turning their back on God. And these prophets were raised up to confront their sin and to confront their apathy. A man like Isaiah warned God's people. He said, the services that you're having, they're pointless Your new moons and appointed feasts, he says, my soul hateth. They are trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. He asked the question, who hath required you to tread my courts? In other words, who's asked you to come to church on Sunday morning? You're coming and you're not right with me. You're coming and you're not living for me. And Isaiah goes on to say this, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. A man like Hosea has to marry a harlotrous woman uh, so that he can symbolize the relationship between God's chosen people and God. He's asked to live out a life of love to somebody who does not reciprocate that love. And now God in Hosea chapter 11 says to his people, And my people are bent to backsliding from me. Though they called them to the Most High, none at all would exalt him. How shall I give thee up, Ephraim? Mine heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. I will not execute the fierceness of mine anger. I will not return to destroy Ephraim. What's God saying? He's saying, oh, my people are backsliding. And though I know they're running away from me, I cannot bring it to my... Uh, come to myself to where I want to destroy them and put them in judgment. He says, I love my people too much to put them in judgment. A prophet like Micah predicts God's judgment on Judah because the people have wholeheartedly turned away from God. He speaks of the moral consequences of their apostasy. He says, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the most high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And he says this, he hath showed thee, O man, what is good than what the Lord doth require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with, the, with thy God. In other words, these people were very religiously pious, but they were not righteously living. 
And these prophets were sent to confront the, the, the main ideas and philosophies of Israel at that time. Oh, the popular opinion was to serve God on the Sabbath and live for me the rest of the week. And these prophets were raised up to confront that. And God would always call them back to repentance and call them back to love, to, to love God and to worship God with a pure heart uh, full of love and devotion. And He would say, come back to me. Repent of your doings. Come back. And almost every prophet not only delivered a message of condemnation, but a message of repentance. And these prophets were rejected. They lived hard lives. You study the ministry of Jesus. Our world today wants to speak about the rosy messages of Jesus. They want to talk about how Jesus taught how to love God and love your neighbor. And friend, He did say that. They want to talk about how Jesus was a miracle worker. How He healed the blind, the sick, and the lame. And friend, He did do those things. But I want you to know in Luke chapter 4 what Jesus' initial and primary message was. The Bible says, uh, from that day forward, Jesus began to preach and to say, Listen, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Jesus preached a message of love, but a message of love that begins in humility. God loved you so much that He was willing to die for you, but He does not exalt the proud. No man comes to God standing up. We all come to Him falling down before His feet. Jesus Christ preached a message of repentance. There's a very unique passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 13. These people somewhat bring Jesus the the day's headline. And they say to Jesus, they say, There were present at that season some that told him of Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now we do not know historically what that specific incident is. But it seems like Pilate had gone and overstepped his boundaries. And he began to interfere with the sacrifices of these Jewish people. And how maybe on their way to sacrifice... Pilate killed some folks just to send a message. This is governmental overreach at its highest. Pilate had no business in this place. And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, have you heard about this apostasy? Have you heard about this blasphemy? Jesus, can you believe Pilate would do such a thing? Jesus, I guess they supposed he would console them. Probably tell them, I know Pilate overreached, but there's a God in heaven that these people are with today. You know what Jesus said? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall also likewise perish. And then he goes on and he says, oh, we've also had another recent catastrophe. The tower of Siloam fell on about 18 people. That's what the Bible says. He says, or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? You know what he goes on to say? He says, I tell you, nay, except ye repent, ye shall also likewise perish. Jesus now calls out governmental overreach as being a bad thing, and he calls out the tragedy of natural disaster as being a bad thing. But these people were so focused on the death of these people that Jesus is not being uh, 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 unaffectionate 
He's not being dismissive of death, but He is trying to confront their reality and say to them, death is not the worst thing. You see, we look at our prayer list, and I mentioned it this week in, in, our, in our staff meeting. 95% of our prayer requests deal with physical ailments. This person's got cancer. This person's sick. This person needs healing. And I get it. Those are important. But the problem is, we as humans think that, that death is the worst thing. Jesus is saying, death is not the worst thing. Dying without me is the worst thing. He tells them, you think this is bad? You think these worshipers killed by Pilate? You think these that the Tower of Siloam fell upon is a bad deal? Unless you get right with me, your case will be worse than theirs. Friend, I just want to tell you today, all around this nation, Jesus will be rejected. But my heart's prayer, and has been my heart's prayer since God put this, this sermon on my heart, is that there would not be a person today who would reject the plea of God's Holy Spirit, calling them to salvation. Friend, don't turn a deaf ear to the moving of God's Spirit in your heart. Don't leave this place today unless you know Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. He's willing to love you. He's willing to forgive you. If you will but humble yourself before Him and say, Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. There's no way I could earn heaven. There's no way I could work my way to heaven. It is only through what you've done that I can ever get to that wonderful place. Would you save me today? John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in all the Bible. But we forget John 3.17, 18, and 19. See, these verses read, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than they love light. You know, the sad ending to Stephen's story is these men are convicted The Bible says they are cut to the heart. They know they're rejecting God's Holy Spirit. They know they're rejecting God. They know they were the ones that condemned Jesus to his death. But instead of responding in humility, what do they do? They take Stephen and they bring him out of town and they stone him to death, thinking that if they can shut up that messenger, they'll never have to listen to that message again. Friend, you may be praying that this message ends soon, and I promise it will. But if if God's Holy Spirit is moving in your heart, you can't shut up that messenger. You may end this sermon and you may get in your car, but on your way home, my prayer is that God's Spirit would so grab you like a rottweiler grabs a T-bone steak and would not let go of you until you repent before God and get saved. Don't leave this place. Thousands of people in America will reject Jesus Christ. But the day I received Him as my Lord and Savior was the greatest day of my life. And it can be for you as well.